Good evening, and welcome to Voice in the Wilderness. I'm Don Noble, Pure Heart Ministries, and I welcome you today with exceedingly great joy. Tonight's message, Unity Out of Adversity. I hope you found last week's message about the Declaration of Independence stimulating and interesting. I have now reread that declaration over and over, and I'm still struck by its clarity and its clarion call to the citizens of the then United States. And I hope you truly understand the 1619 Project now. And I want to make sure, at least I'm encouraging you, do not let this be taught in your child's classroom or your grandchild's classroom. This writing, this message that has now been put in every classroom across the entire country, it is evil. It is evil, and it is an affront to those brave Americans who secured our freedom from Great Britain. Remember that the primary premise of the 1619 Project was that the American Revolution was fought to keep slavery in place, which I hope you understood from last week's message, that was that is, was and is a total, total fabrication, a lie. Today, we're going to review some facts about the American Revolution that you may not have known. You know, we talk about, and I've, I've mentioned before, about historical revisionism occurring today and how they're, they keep trying to revise history and, of course, delete important history. But I believe that this revisionism started a long time ago because I never learned any of the things I'm about to share with you today. Remember, John Dewey, and growing up, gosh, I thought John Dewey was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Not so. Now, I've talked about John Dewey before, but if you missed that program, remember that John Dewey and his friend, Herbert Mann, they had a plan. And their plan was to do, it was to introduce socialism. These people were atheists, and so they skillfully saw fit to have any religious history removed. So I'm going to be sharing information out of a book that I think it would behoove you to own this book because the facts in here are just astounding. It's a phenomenal book. It's called America's Providential History by Mark Belize and Stephen McDowell. This is a superb book that you would actually want to read yourself. You would actually want your children grandchildren to read. If you want to understand American history clearly from a Christian perspective, this book ought to be in your library. So today's topic, Unity 
out of adversity. I want to talk to you about the adversity, the things, some of the things leading up to the revolution. And a unique thing that occurred out of that adversity. So I'm going to start with talking about um, England. For many decades, England had embraced a philosophy of government that gave the colonies representation in matters relating to themselves. This began, uh, this began to change with the Stamp Act in 1765 to raise revenue for the war debt accrued through defending the colonies from the French and Indians, England's parliament imposed a tax upon the colonists without their having any say in the matter. So let me just say that there, there were issues that started to rub the colonies the wrong way, so to speak. And the Stamp Act was one of them because now there's a tax on them and they don't have any say in the matter. These colonists recognized that it was their responsibility to pay for the cost of their defense, but they opposed the principle of the parliament being able to tax them without their consent. That was an important thing. Or the consent of their representatives. Due to their protest, the Stamp Act was repealed, but England's change in government policy continued with the Townsend Act in 1767, two years later, and then the Tea Act in 1773. So, you see, standing up does matter. The colonists would no longer tolerate this arbitrary power of the king or parliament to take their property without their consent. They claimed it violated the English Constitution guaranteeing the fundamental right of property. It was not that they were poor and would not pay but rather they were free and would not submit to tyranny. After Parliament imposed a tax upon all British tea sold in the colonies, the colonists gathered together and determined that they would boycott the tea and not purchase it. As ships full of tea were on their way to America, patriots in Philadelphia, Boston, New York, and Charleston, the major destination for ports for the ships held town meetings. When the ships, ships arrived in Boston, the Patriots put a guard at the docks to prevent the tea from being unloaded. Almost 7,000 people gathered at the Old South Meeting House to hear from Mr. Roch, the owner of the ships. He explained that if he attempted to sail from Boston back to Great Britain without unloading the tea, his life and business would be in danger. So the colonists decided that in order to protect, to protect Mr. Roch, they must accept the tea, but they wouldn't have to drink it. By accepting the shipment, they were agreeing to pay for it, but they would make a radical sacrifice in order to protest this injustice before the eyes of the world. Thus ensued the Boston Tea Party. To make it even more newsworthy, as well as to protect individuals involved, the men disguised themselves as Indians. Historian Richard Frothingham records the incident, and he says, 
The party in disguise, whooping like Indians, went on board the vessels and warning their officers and those of the custom house to keep out of the way, unlaid the hatches, hoisted the chests of tea on deck, cut them open, and hove the tea overboard. They proved quiet and systematic workers. No one interfered with them. No other property was injured. No person was harmed. No tea was allowed to be carried away. And the silence of the crowd on shore was such that the breaking of the chests was distinctly heard by them. The whole, Governor Hutchison wrote, was done with very little tumult. So you see, there's a way to protest. And this was an excellent way to protest without causing harm to the man who had the ship and other people. Soon after this, ships arrived in Philadelphia, New York, and Charleston, and were convinced to return to England. This confrontation brought about much unity through the colonies and brought the first proposal for a Continental Congress. So you see, out of adversity, the colonies began to unify. England, however, embarrassed and infuriated, decided to retaliate. They passed the Boston Port Bill, which was intended to shut down all commerce on June 1st and starve the townspeople into submission. Kind of sounds like some things that the current United States administration is trying to do. Committees of correspondence spread the news by letter through all the colonies. The colonies began to respond. Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Virginia called for days of fasting and prayer. Now, did you hear that in your history class or read that in your history book? Thomas Jefferson penned the resolve in Virginia, quote, to invoke the divine interposition to give to the American people one heart and one mind to oppose by all just means every injury to American rights, end quote. Now, that statement by Jefferson, it may not sound like a big deal, but it's a big deal because see what he's saying is we want, we want the American people to have one heart and one mind, and we want them to oppose all these things that have brought injury to American rights. Well, right now, our rights are being forfeited in many, many ways, you see. So Thomas Jefferson made a very important point when he made that statement. Frothingham writes, on the day, June 1st, the Port Act went into effect. Now, again, June 1st, Great Britain decides all commerce, all commerce is shutting down. Imagine. Okay, so on June 1st, the Port Act went into effect. A cordon of British men of war was moored around the town of Boston. Oh, boy. Not keel, 
nor a raft was permitted to approach the wharves. The wheels of commerce were stopped. The poor were deprived of employment. The rich were cut off from their usual resources. The town entered upon its period of suffering. The day was widely observed as a day of fasting and prayer. The manifestations of sympathy were general. Business was suspended, bells were muffled, and tolled from morning to night. Flags were kept at half-mast, streets were dressed in mourning, public buildings and shops were draped in black. Large congregations filled the churches. In Virginia, the members of the House of Burgesses assembled at their place of meeting and went in procession with the speaker at their head to the church and listened to a discourse. Never, a lady wrote, since my residence in Virginia, Virginia have I seen so large a congregation as was this day assembled to hear divine service. The preacher selected for his text the words, quote, Be strong and of good courage, fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. The people, Jefferson says, met generally with anxiety and alarm in their countenances, and the effect of that day through the whole colony was like a shock of electricity arousing every man and placing him erect and solidly on his center. These words describe the effect of the Port Act through the 13 colonies. The colonies responded with material support as well, not by governmental decree, but more significantly by individual action. So the people, the people rose up. They saw the distress of their fellow citizens. A grassroots movement of zealous workers went door to door to gather patriotic offerings. These gifts were sent to Boston, accompanied with letters containing phrases such as, Stand firm and let your intrepid courage show to the world that you are Christians. Out of the diversity of the colonies, a deep Christian unity was being revealed on a national level for the very first time time. In the Boston Gazette, on July 11, 1774, the following words appeared in a published letter. My persecuted brethren of this metropolis, you may rest assured that the guardian God of New England, who holds the hearts of his people in his hands, has influenced your distant brethren to the benevolence. This was the greatest miracle of the revolution. Unity out of diversity. This is why e pluribus unum, one from the many, was such a significant motto. John Adams said this, The colonies had grown up under the constitutions of government so different. There was so great a variety of religions. They were composed of so many different nations. Their customs, manners, habits had so little resemblance, and their intercourse had been so rare, and their knowledge of each other so imperfect, 
that to unite them in the same principles in theory and the same system of action was certainly a very difficult enterprise. The complete accomplishment of it in so short a time and by such simple means was perhaps a singular example in the history of mankind. Thirteen clocks were made to strike together, a perfection of mechanism which no artist had ever before affected. Wow, that says a lot. That says a lot about the state of the union at the time. Now, just from reading that one paragraph by John Adams, you begin to see something different about the colonies that I'm not so sure that I recall ever being taught about all the diversity, the different uh, customs, the different nations. And I, I, I love, um, you know, how he puts it together. Thirteen clocks were made to strike together. Unity. And how interesting, you know, he's noting that because of such diversity, it would be next to impossible to try to unify these colonies. Yet, yet, England was doing a grand job. Little did they know that what they were doing to impose hardship on the colonists would bring unity. I, you know, I love this. I think this is, I think this is just incredible. Further evidence of national unity and union is found in the call for a Continental Congress that convened for the first time on September 5th, 1774. So you see what happened is all of this came together to um, cause them to then realize, hey, we need to bring a Continental Congress together. Rosalie Slater said, within the space of two months, for the first time in Christian history, three million people achieved biblical Christian unity. At this um, Continental Congress, B.F. Morris writes, No doubt the assembly of the First Continental Congress may be regarded as the era at which the union of these states commenced. This event took place in Philadelphia, the city distinguished by the great civil events of our early history on the 5th of September, 1774, on which day the First Continental Congress assembled. The proceedings of the assembly were introduced by religious observances and devout supplications to the throne of grace for the inspiration of wisdom and the spirit of good counsels. The first act of the first session of the Continental Congress was to pass the following resolution. Here's the very first resolution passed. This is Tuesday, September 6, 1774. Resolved that the Reverend Mr. Duchesne be desired to open Congress tomorrow morning with prayer at Carpenter's Hall at 9 o'clock. 
The Journal of the Proceeding of Congress records for September 7, 1774. Agreeable to the resolve of yesterday, the meeting was opened with prayers by the Reverend Mr. Duchet. Voted that the thanks of the Congress be given to Mr. Duchet by Mr. Cushing and Mr. Ward for performing divine service and for the excellent prayer which he composed and delivered on the occasion. A beautiful reminiscence of this event was recorded by John Adams in a letter to his wife, and I want you to listen carefully what John Adams writes to Abigail about what happened. He says, When the Congress met, Mr. Cushing made a motion that it should be opened with prayer. It was opposed by Mr. Jay of New York and Mr. Rutledge of South Carolina because we were so divided in our religious sentiments. Some Episcopalians, some Quakers, some Anabaptists, some Presbyterians, some Congregationalists, that we could not join in the same act of worship. Mr. Samuel Adams arose and said, quote, that he was no bigot and could hear a prayer from any gentleman of piety and virtue who was at the same time a friend to his country. He was a stranger in Philadelphia but had heard that Mr. Duchet deserved that character, and therefore he moved that Mr. Duchet, an Episcopal clergyman, might be desired to read prayers to Congress tomorrow morning. The motion was seconded and passed in the affirmative. Mr. Randolph, our president, waited on Mr. Duchet and received an answer that if his health would permit, he certainly would. Accordingly, next morning he appeared with his clerk, and his pontificals, and read the Psalter for the seventh day of September, which was the 35th Psalm. You must remember this was the next morning after we heard the rumor of the horrible cannonade of Boston. I never saw a greater effect produced upon an audience. It seemed, listen, listen to this, it seemed as if heaven had ordained that Psalm to be read on that morning. After this, Mr. Duchet, unexpectedly to everyone, struck out into extemporary prayer, which filled the bosom of every man present. Mr. Duchet concluded his prayer. Be thou present, O God of wisdom, and direct the counsels of this honorable assembly. Enable them to settle all things on the best and surest foundation, that the scene of blood may be speedily closed, that order, harmony, and peace may be effectually restored, and truth and justice, religion and piety prevail and flourish among the people. Preserve the health of their bodies and the vigor of their minds. Shower down on them and the millions they here represent such temporal blessings as thou seest expedient for them in this world, and crown them with everlasting glory in the world to come. All this we ask in the name and through the merits of Jesus Christ, thy Son, our Savior. Amen. Responding to this prayer, John Adams wrote, I must confess, I never heard a better prayer or one so well pronounced. Episcopalian as he is. Dr. Cooper himself never prayed with such fervor, such ardor, such earnestness and pathos 
and in the language so elegant and sublime, for America, for the Congress, for the Providence of Massachusetts Bay, and especially the town of Boston. It has had an excellent effect on everybody here. Connecticut delegate Silas Dean wrote, The Congress met and opened with a prayer made by the Reverend Mr. Duchesne, which it was worth writing 100 miles to hear. He read the lessons of the day and then prayed without book about 10 minutes so pertinently with such fervency, purity, sublimity of style and sentiment that even Quakers shed tears. So I'm going to conclude from from this book, um, and I just want to read a scripture that talks about unity. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul, writing to the church of Ephesus, says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So apparently the good Reverend Episcopalian clergyman, Reverend Duchesne, did a phenomenal job, obviously the Holy Spirit working and operating through him, that it brought such unity. And see, they, they were even hesitant about whether that could even happen when they gathered for the First Continental Congress. But I love, love, love that the first, first thing that they did was to say, we're going to have prayer. And indeed, they had prayer that brought such a strong bond between these men that was a good beginning to help push them forward to what would eventually become the American Revolution. I think the importance of the clergy is so um, downplayed. We, I, I never heard about the clergy. And you know, last summer I talked about the Black Robe Regiment or last some sometime, late fall maybe, about the Black Robe Regiment, but how important the clergy were in really um, helping to move forward the idea of liberty. So we have so much to thank these men um, of the past for. Well, I'm out of time. I'm going to continue in this vein next week. Uh, unity out of adversity. So I'll be doing a part two. And anyway, uh, you can go to www.pureheart.today and listen to this podcast. Again, you can go to iHeart 
radio, you can download that app and you would go to Pure Heart Ministries, to the podcast Pure Heart Ministries to listen to this again if you'd like to hear it again is another way to hear it again. And of course, I really, really do appreciate it. I've had a few people email me. I've emailed back and haven't heard back from them. But I would love for you to give me some feedback. You can email me, all lowercase, dawn, D-A-W-N, at pureheart.today. Dawn at pureheart.today. And uh, always look forward to your prayers. And I'm thankful for your prayers and would love for you to uh, help support this ministry financially. You can send a check to Pure Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 85, Valley Grove, West Virginia, 26060. That's Pure Heart Ministries, P.O. Box 85, Valley Grove, West Virginia, 26060. Well, I look forward to being with you again next week. This is Don Noble saying, Shalom, Shalom, peace be unto you.